0: Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.
1: This week on New Mexico in Focus, we talked to a Hispanic studies professor taking a critical look at Don Juan de Añate.
2: What if we can imagine a different kind of future? We can't imagine a different kind of past. That past is what it was, but we have to be honest about what that past was.
1: PLUS, A LOOK AT OUR CANDIDATE CONVERSATIONS IN NEW MEXICO'S FIRST CONGRESSIONAL DISTRICT. NEW MEXICO IN FOCUS STARTS NOW. THANKS FOR JOINING US THIS WEEK. I'M YOUR HOST, Gene GRANT. CD1 IN NEW MEXICO HAS GROWN MORE SAFE FOR DEMOCRATIC REPRESENTATIVES, BUT A CHALLENGER BELIEVES SHE'S FOUND A KEY ISSUE AS CRIME CONTINUES TO TROUBLE ALBUQUERQUE. WE'LL CONTRAST THE CANDIDATES. The line opinion panel examines the toppling of the obelisk on Santa Fe's historic plaza and the city's handling of a conflict that's not just months, but decades and centuries in the making. They'll also look at yet another attempt to reform the public Public regulation commission. We start with the troubling resurgence of COVID cases. Here's the line.
3: Welcome to the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus. Today is Friday, October 16th, 2020. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We appreciate you listening. If you can, do us a favor and leave us a review here wherever you're getting your podcast. That will really help us out a bunch. We've got a lot in store for you this week, and we're going to kick things off with a story that everyone is talking about As it has been for months now, that's COVID-19, things headed in the wrong direction here in New Mexico for sure. All of the uh, infection rates, hospitalizations, all the key indicators that Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham uh, follows are above double or doubled. Uh, in the last several weeks, and so things are not trending in the right direction. She rolled back or changed, altered some of her restrictions this week. Namely, we're back to gatherings of no more than five people. We uh, are now seeing that um, establishments sell alcohol have to close at 10 p.m., among some other changes. And so we're gonna start things off by reactions and discussion about uh, the state's response and this recent spike in COVID cases. With us on the line this week, as you'll hear, Steve Terrell, retired reporter at the Santa Fe, New Mexican. Also regular, uh, Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. And we welcome back Senator Dede Feldman, former state senator, always has great insight. But let's head over to them right now to hear more about COVID-19.
1: New Mexico is not doing well when it comes to controlling COVID. The much-cited seven-day average case count is more than double what the state says it needs to be if New Mexico plans to keep businesses and schools running and open. Here to discuss is the line opinion panel. We welcome line regular and principal of the Garrity Group, Tom Garrity. Now, the line regular, former state senator Dee Feldman, also joins us via Zoom. And rounding out our table is line guest Steve Terrell, former reporter for the Santa Fe New Mexican, also via Zoom from Santa Fe. All right, guys, the governor announced this week that she's made changes to the public health order. Let's start here. Tom, a 10 p.m. closing time for any restaurant serving alcohol. The governor has finally found a restriction that restaurant association is behind. What works with this? How does this all work? Is this going to be Okay.
4: Yeah, well, it's a it's a step, right? Mm-hmm. You know, right. You know, the governor's office has uh, even admitted uh, through their spokesperson that no, that they don't really know what is causing this latest uptick. They can't trace it back to a specific event. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that the 10 o'clock time is uh, is is good because it helps to engage the small business, the restaurants. Uh, as a part of the solution. And so, you know, the media coverage that I've been reading has been very favorable of it. So, uh, and it sounds pretty reasonable too, as far as, you know, It's some will say it's a quasi curfew, but, um, you know, I would say, you know what? it's It's a good, happy medium. You know, you can serve alcohol until 10 o'clock, uh, you know, and and it addresses that. You know, I think that the larger communication issues at play, though, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's just so much confusion out there. So I think that the more that the governor's office uh, and other entities can really reinforce what is, uh, what is and isn't allowed under the different public health orders, I think is great. For example, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have uh, houses of worship are open, but you can't have gatherings of five or you know, uh, no more than five people in in a house. Uh, so that's a bit of a conflict. Um, another conflict could be, um, you know, the uh, university basketball is exempt. So you can, you know, they can travel and play games in state and out of state, but New Mexico United can't. Right. So you just have a lot of these, you know, unique rules that, you know, basically confuse the general public. Mm-hmm. So I think the more that the governor's office and other entities can go ahead and just really say, here's what uh, YOU KNOW, here's, HERE'S WHAT THE RULES ARE uh, AND HERE'S WHY YOU NEED TO FOLLOW THEM uh, Will BE GREAT AND TRY AND ELIMINATE AS MUCH OF THESE KIND OF THESE DUAL KIND OF, YOU KNOW, uh, uh, SETS OF GUIDELINES
1: I THINK WOULD BE VERY HELPFUL. THAT'S A LEGIT uh, THING. I'VE HEARD THAT FROM OTHER FOLKS THAT THERE'S A LITTLE BIT OF CONFUSION STILL OUT THERE EVEN AFTER ALL THIS TIME. YOU KNOW, STEVE TERRELL, YOU'RE UP IN uh, SANTA FE, OF COURSE. IT'S GOING TO START GETTING COLDER FOR YOU GUYS, YOU KNOW, A LITTLE BIT BEFORE ALBUQUERQUE CERTAINLY. And I'm wondering if you if just knowing the footprint of the Santa Fe restaurant scene, the idea of winter and what's
5: coming up for winter
1: how is it going to be manageable for folks up there
5: i uh, I had lunch yesterday with a friend uh, at a in the patio of a restaurant, and uh, we were talking about the the very same thing it's uh yeah I, it's going to be hard um, mm-hmm. she says well I, I kind of like the cold better, so uh, I'll be less affected than others and that's kind of true for me, too. But uh, yeah, when it starts snowing and when it gets really cold, that's, it's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. And um, the 10 o'clock curfew, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to affect Santa Fe. We, we start rolling up the sidewalks around nine o'clock, even right. before the pandemic. But mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure if that'll have a big effect or not. Mm-hmm. One thing I read uh, in a, a CNN story, actually, was uh, the... The head of the uh, CDC told governors yesterday that uh, he believes the main cause of this up-uprise or spike of uh, all these in all the states is due to uh, small gatherings. He said we're doing fairly well in the public square, but um, these small gatherings in people's houses, where you think, "Well, yeah, this is my cousin; he's okay. Uh, right. That's my neighbor, and this is my friend," you know. Uh, but uh, you never know, and. Uh, HE he THEORIZED, I DON'T KNOW IF THERE'S DATA TO BACK IT UP, BUT uh, Mm -hmm. HE THEORIZED THAT THAT'S WHAT uh, IS CAUSING THIS uh, UPRISE.
1: Mm -hmm. Didi, AS WE SIT HERE TAPING ON THURSDAY MIDDAY, I MEAN, THAT WAS A SHOCKING NUMBER FROM THE GOVERNOR ABOUT HOW MANY CASES HAVE BEEN REPORTED NOW. Uh, 577 IS JUST BEYOND THE BEYOND. WHEN YOU THINK ABOUT WHERE WE WERE BACK IN AUGUST, JULY, YOU KNOW WHAT I MEAN, WHERE THINGS WERE SORT OF... what, WHAT WENT WRONG IN YOUR VIEW? IS IT TRAVELING? IS IT LIKE STEVE SAID, WE'RE GATHERING? What, what, in your view, what's what's gone wrong here?
6: Well, you know, it's a combination of things, mm-hmm. of course, and um, you know, I I have to say that it it kind of goes to the heart of human relations. If you accept the premise that it's small family gatherings. That are THAT IS THE CAUSE OF THIS SPIKE, mm-hmm. THEN WHAT ARE YOU GOING TO DO? ARE YOU GOING TO BAN THANKSGIVING? Um, ARE YOU GOING TO uh, BAN uh, FAMILIES GETTING TOGETHER? THAT'S THE HEART OF NEW MEXICO. RIGHT. AND I THINK THE GOVERNOR IS AWARE OF THAT. I THINK THE GOVERNOR IS AWARE OF THAT AND IT POSES A REAL DILEMMA. Um, HERE'S A GOVERNOR THAT HADN'T SEEN HER OWN MOTHER uh, for, FOR SO MANY MONTHS. Mm-hmm. Um, AND WHO IS UNDER QUARANTINE HERSELF, AND YET SHE CAN'T uh, CONVINCE PEOPLE TO NOT GATHER IN, I I MEAN, I'VE SEEN LOTS OF GATHERINGS ABOVE 10 PEOPLE Mm -hmm. uh, ALL OVER THE STATE, AND uh, HOW DO YOU STOP THAT? OKAY, NOW THERE'S A a GUIDELINE THAT HAS TO BE FIVE AND LESS. WELL, YOU KNOW, I THINK THAT uh, I'M WITH TOM ON THIS, THERE NEEDS TO BE, A BETTER COMMUNICATION STRATEGY GIVEN THE OBSTACLES Mm -hmm. AND SHE NEEDS TO BE USING SURROGATES uh, THAT REPRESENT VARIOUS GROUPS uh, IN in THE NEW MEXICO CULTURE AND HAVE THEM EXPRESS HOW IMPORTANT IT IS. AND WE CERTAINLY HAVE THE VERY DIRE CIRCUMSTANCES AND IT'S ONLY GOING TO GET WORSE Mm -hmm. BECAUSE WE'RE NOW COUNTING THE NEW CASES. WE'RE NOT COUNTING THE NEW DEATHS. And not counting the new hospitalizations, so um, I'm I'm worried about it. I'm I mean, D- Governor Cuomo had daily uh, briefings uh, when things got out of hand in New York, and it may be that we need more. MORE CONSISTENT, MORE mm-hmm. CONSTANT MESSAGING.
1: I THINK YOU MIGHT BE RIGHT ON THAT. TOM, PICK UP ON THAT IF YOU WOULD. It's, THIS IS THE ART OF THE GAME, LITERALLY, how to, HOW TO CONVINCE PEOPLE TO DO SOMETHING THEY MAY NOT WANT TO BE you know, CRAZY ABOUT DOING AND HOW ONE DOES THAT. DOES Didi MAKE A POINT ABOUT st- SPREADING THE MESSAGING OUT AMONGST DIFFERENT VOICES?
4: oh absolutely we need different messengers Mm -hmm. uh you know obviously you know we there's a low level of trust of uh of government officials right uh so using them as the main carriers of the messages probably not the best idea focus more on doctors more on family members um and to, to Didi's point you know we really have to take a fresh look at how this is messaged, you know, instead Mm -hmm. of saying, you know, don't meet in groups of five or smaller or five, you know, groups of five and and above is, is not allowed. um, Why don't you reshape the messaging and say, here are the safe ways to meet in, you know, groups of five Mm -hmm. or groups of under 10 and provide some, you know, real common sense things for people to do instead of just saying, you know, don't do it. And then everybody's going to say, hey, well, let's get together tonight for Netflix.
3: You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> and and the, so really kind of changing that messaging to really enable the, you know, the residents as a part of the solution instead of uh, you know, being a culprit and somebody who's you know, psychologically breaking the law. Right. Good
1: points there. Going to take a quick break, break with this group to reset. When we come back, we'll look at the end of the obelisk in the Santa Fe Plaza.
3: Going to stay right here with the line for a bit. Another big story in the news this week was the tearing down of the controversial obelisk monument in the Santa Fe Plaza, which commemorates um, an emotionally charged history in New Mexico of Spanish reoccupation of the, the territory and especially Native American communities. This has long been a controversial monument in the plaza. You're going to hear Steve Terrell when we head back to the line panel talk about how 40 years ago someone snuck in under the cover of darkness and scratched off the word savages from the plaque that was attached to that obelisk. And of course, it's been a focal point uh, in recent months uh, around Black Lives Matter protests as well as other protests of controversial monuments and statues. Santa Fe Mayor Alan Weber had indicated he was going to put together a commission to study what to do with the obelisk long term. But that had not happened yet, and Monday being Indigenous Peoples Day, formerly Columbus Day here in New Mexico, uh, some folks took it into their own hands to just go ahead and tear down that obelisk. We've got video from the Santa Fe reporter of that protest and the pulling down of the obelisk. You can go to our website to see that, but uh, there's a lot of great discussion to be had here again about these difficult conversations about our history and how we treat monuments and statues and that history in general. And we're going to have more on that later in the show as well. But for now, let's head over to the line and get their responses to not only the tearing down of the obelisk, but also the city of Santa Fe's handling of the situation.
1: On Monday, Native American activists threw a chain and a rope around the obelisk in Santa Fe's plaza and pulled it down. The monument went up just after the Civil War to honor fallen Union soldiers but over the years became more of a general memorial to troops. Add it, you know, it at one time described native communities by the way as savages as well. That's the reason why in June as the country was reconsidering its monuments, Santa Fe removed one Don Diego de Vargas, one of Don Diego de Vargas, and the mayor tried to remove the obelisk in the dark of night. You might remember that. Then Mayor Allen Weber promised a "quote truth and reconciliation committee" to look at what to do regarding the obelisk, but that effort floundered, and the mayor stopped talking about it until this week, when it was too late. Steve, did Mr. Weber make a mistake as you hear the timeline here?
5: Yeah, um, I, um, you know, this thing's been going on. You know, I remember forty years ago when the guy snuck on the plaza. He was well, not. He didn't sneak. He was a, disguised as a workman. And he chiseled away the word "savage" on that monument. And right. I, he's always been one of my Santa Fe heroes. Actually, and they never did find out who it was. No one ever claimed credit or got arrested. I'm sure the statute of limitations is up now if they want to come forward. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's. Uh, he promised in June to have this start this commission. You, you mentioned, mm-hmm. and it never happened. Uh, I, I just saw a report in today's paper saying that. Uh, well, yeah, we're going to do it now, but. Um, you know now that the horse is out of the barn uh we'll we'll, we'll have a commission yeah but um yeah I, and, and there were other mistakes too i think probably uh there were six police on the plaza and they were ordered to stand down a couple of people got arrested for uh scuffling with the police right And uh, they didn't look like native americans by the i, I don't know uh, maybe i shouldn't judge what ethnicity they are but. Uh, they didn't look like natives to me. And well, the, f- the two cats that got arrested
1: didn't look native
5: as well. I mean, you know, I mean, they yeah.
1: have their mugshots and their names. It doesn't, they don't re- yeah, yeah. <laughs> really native. You know, it, Tom, let me pick up on you on with this. Um, the idea that, you know, of all the days, uh, you know, where there might be a problem, I would think Monday would have been on the mayor's calendar and Santa Fe Police Department and everyone else as a watch out for the, day, especially with things building up from Saturday. So touch on the, how you feel this was handled by the mayor at this point.
4: Yeah, um, I, I'm not a Mayor Weber apologist. Uh, I think he needs to uh, step up the media game uh, mm-hmm. and uh, really and just provide that leadership that he promised back in June. Obviously now it appears to be happening. I think that the Santa Fe police and the approach, I know I'll be in the minority with this, but um, I I think that they did the right thing as far as pulling back. Uh, It looked like it was gonna be a peaceful protest by the time it got out of hand. um, You know, obviously I think at that point, the, you know, horse was already out of the barn and they had to just kind of let it play its course because uh, in this day and age, I would imagine that the the group of protesters and specifically those who, uh, you know, tore down the obelisk, uh, were ready with cell phones and a lot of um, uh, a drama in the event that the police were you know called in to start pulling people off. Mm-hmm. I think the story today would have been very different, uh, and one you know focused more on police violence as opposed to uh, you know an obelisk coming down. Uh, you know, today. So I, I think that the call from the mayor's office and the police uh, was the right call, as far as not to engage. Let them have a peaceful protest. It got out of hand, but you know what? The only thing that was really damaged uh, was a, a chunk of cement. Yeah.
1: Didi, pick up on that if you would as well. I, I mean, the symbolism is powerful. It's powerful. I totally
6: agree with Tom, though. Mm-hmm. I, I I do sympathize with the mayor. I mean. Santa Fe is a sticky wicket when it comes to uh, their view of history, historic preservation, the various groups and special events that have protested. Um, And so I think he, he, he valued people over property. AND I THINK THAT WAS THE RIGHT DECISION. THE STORY WOULD HAVE BEEN DIFFERENT TODAY. Um, CAN
1: I INTERRUPT YOU THERE? DO WE KNOW THAT? I MEAN, DO WE KNOW THAT IF HE JUST PARKED, IF SANTA FE POLICE DEPARTMENT JUST PARKED TWO CRUISERS ABOUT 25 FEET AWAY, DO WE KNOW IT WOULD HAVE BEEN AN ESCALATING PROBLEM? I I JUST, I I CAN'T QUITE SQUARE THAT IN MY OWN MIND.
6: WELL, YOU KNOW, WE CAN TALK ABOUT HYPOTHETICALS. I I DON'T KNOW, OF COURSE, I DON'T KNOW WHETHER IT WOULD HAVE BEEN DIFFERENT OR NOT. BUT, YOU KNOW, indigenous, THIS IS a, ONE OF THE FIRST OPPORTUNITIES THAT mm-hmm. NATIVE AMERICANS HAVE HAD TO CELEBRATE INDIGENOUS PEOPLE'S DAY. Right. AND uh, I THINK IT'S REALLY KIND OF SAD THAT THIS HAPPENED THEN BECAUSE THERE are A LOT OF CONSTRUCTIVE ACTIVITIES THAT WERE GOING ON. Uh, DOWN IN ALBUQUERQUE THERE WAS A RALLY uh, FOR TOHAJULAY uh, WATER. UM uh, uh, TO SOLVE THAT PROBLEM Mm -hmm. DOWN HERE IT WAS A ZOOM RALLY THERE WAS A CELEBRATION BY ZOOM AT THE INDIAN PUEBLO CULTURAL CENTER UM THIS IS UH THIS IS A LONG THIS IS NOT GOING TO GO AWAY RIGHT THIS 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 DIVISION IS NOT GOING TO GO AWAY AND SO THE QUESTION IS DO YOU WANT TO INFLAME IT Uh, With a police presence, or do you somehow want to diffuse it? I think a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is the way to go. The mistake was you don't promise to do something and then wait four months Mm -hmm. before you do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to, if you're not going to, if you can't do it right away, don't promise it.
1: You know, Steve, when we pick up with you on that too to finish up this segment. YOU KNOW, AS WE SIT HERE, WE HAD A CITY COUNCIL MEETING IN SANTA FE LAST NIGHT. WE HAD A NUMBER OF CITY COUNCILORS READY TO GO WITH THIS TRUTH AND RECONCILIATION COMMITTEE. WHERE WERE THEY THESE PAST FEW MONTHS? I I DIDN'T GET the. AGAIN, I'M NOT IN SANTA FE, SO I'M NOT SAYING LIKE I HAVE a, A VIEW OF THIS, BUT I DID NOT GET THE SENSE THAT THE CITY COUNCIL MEMBERS THAT WERE IN SUPPORT OF THIS WERE REALLY SORT OF PUSHING to get the mayor to kind of get this
5: going, any culpability on on any uh, on the on the council? Yeah, I, I haven't been following City Hall that closely, but no, I haven't read anything uh, mm-hmm. about any uh, big push to start this thing. I I think it's just kind of like, well, let's just not rock the boat now, or, or I, I think they probably just forgot about you know, got, with the pandemic and everything else going on, you know, they're busy, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but they shouldn't have uh, swept it under the rug for that long and. AND uh, IT WOULD BE LONGER IF uh, THIS HADN'T HAPPENED That's ON MONDAY. THAT'S A POINT. And, uh, TOM, REAL QUICK, HOW
1: DOES ONE DO THIS AND INCLUDES THE PUBLIC, A TRUTH AND RECONCILIATION THING? I, I MEAN, I WATCHED IT YEARS AGO IN SOUTH AFRICA WHERE THIS, this IDEA FIRST CAME FROM. IN THE EARLY DAYS OF THE INTERNET, I REMEMBER WATCHING IT, was just IT WAS STUNNING, ACTUALLY. IT WAS JUST LIKE SO CONFESSIONAL AND SO DIFFICULT. IT, take, it TOOK LIKE TWO WEEKS. IT WAS A REAL LONG THING. How, how, do you, how, would, how would you picture you advising the mayor how to get the, the public involved with this?
4: Well, the first thing is to do is to listen. Um, BECAUSE A LOT OF PEOPLE HAVE THINGS THAT THEY WANT TO SAY THAT THEY NEED TO SAY WITH RESPECT TO THIS ON MULTIPLE DIFFERENT SIDES. SO, Mm -hmm. um, YOU KNOW, SETTING UP A a SERIES OF OR A NUMBER OF DIFFERENT OUTLETS FOR GROUPS TO SHARE THEIR PERSPECTIVES. Mm -hmm. AND BECAUSE I DON'T EVEN SEE THAT THE COMMISSION OR THIS COMMITTEE WOULD EVEN HAVE ANYTHING TO SAY UNTIL THEY'VE HEARD EVERYTHING THAT NEEDS TO BE HEARD, EVEN THOUGH THEY THINK THEY MIGHT HAVE HEARD IT, Mm -hmm. GIVE THE COMMUNITY A CHANCE TO SHARE THEIR, TO SPEAK THEIR piece. AND THEN FROM THERE HAVE THE COMMISSION GO BACK AND SAY, OKAY, you know, WHAT IS THE BEST WAY TO DO IT? AND THEN START TO CONVENE VERY PUBLIC, NOTHING BEHIND CLOSED DOORS, right. but VERY PUBLIC uh, CONVERSATIONS ABOUT uh, AN ISSUE THAT it NEEDS TO BE ADDRESSED IN THE COMMUNITY SPOTLIGHT. I APPRECIATE THAT POINT. THAT'S HOW TO GET IT DONE. WE'RE OUT OF TIME FOR NOW. THIS GROUP WILL BE BACK
1: TO LOOK AT THE PUBLIC REGULATION COMMISSION REFORM IDEA.
3: All right. We mentioned we have more about um, our controversial history here in New Mexico, colonialism, Hispanic heritage, lots of things wrapped up into this treatment of Native American communities for sure. And we're lucky this week to be joined by an ASU, Arizona State University, assistant professor, Vanessa Fonseca Chavez. She sat down with correspondent Russell Contreras. She's done a lot of academic work. On specifically Don Juan de Oñate, she's working on a new biography of the conquistador. Now, at the center of definitely the um, statue here in Albuquerque, that was the home to protests and one in particular that turned violent back in June. Uh, this is not a unique story to Santa Fe; it's happening all across the state. As Don Juan de Oñate is the names on buildings, streets, all kinds of things. And so she's got a really great perspective, academic perspective, on not only how these histories are so complicated and complex, but how we should uh, deal with them and look at them moving forward as we try to decide how to handle these monuments and obelisks as well as these conversations moving forward. Here now, correspondent Russell Contreras.
0: Uh, Dr. Fonseca Chavez, thank you for joining us here today on New Mexico in Focus.
2: Thanks for having me, Russ.
0: Before we get into your book, uh, your current book and your future projects, tell me, what is it about uh, your scholarship that attracts you to uh, the contradictions of New Mexico's colonial past and what that tells us about today?
2: Yeah, so in my first chapter of my book, I talk about growing up in northwestern New Mexico and sort of living within these contradictions. Growing up in an area where there are Hispanic and Anglo and indigenous communities that, uh, you know, when you're, you're younger, you don't really notice the different sort of contradictions or political leanings or, you know, deeper histories, but you see those things enacted all around you. And so I think there was a point in my life where I started to have more sort of visceral responses to these things that were going on. And uh, when I was in my master's program at UNM, I it dawned on me that I was like, I want to study these legacies of colonialism. And a number of professors at UNM had told me, that's overdone. We don't want, you know, we don't talk about that anymore. But one of the interesting things is that once I stepped outside of New Mexico and I went to Arizona State to do my PhD. It was a different sort of way of looking at your home space. So there's something about like if you're in New Mexico, you understand it and you live it and you get the contradictions. But when you step outside, it provides a different lens for you to look at what is going on in your home state.
0: Your book, uh, Kerencia, Reflections on New Mexico Homeland. Talk about how this book project came about uh, after you became a scholar.
2: Yeah, so there was a few of us, um, Dulcinea Lara, Spencer Herrera, and Levi Romero. We had been doing this sort of conference circuit, and we wanted to talk about New Mexico, but there were a lot of conference spaces. We were getting rejected from these conference spaces, from these like journal spaces, and we were just thinking like there needs to be a critical space to be able to discuss more emerging scholarship really on New Mexico. So we're really grateful to all of the the scholars who have really put that work into place and provided us with some of the sort of conceptual and theoretical models for how to how to uh, look at New Mexico in different ways. But we really wanted to think about, you know, there's this huge group of people from New Mexico that are some of them are leaving New Mexico, some of them are being trained in New Mexico. But we really wanted to talk about what this new generation of scholarship looks like. And so um, this came together actually at uh, the Buffalo uh, thunder resort in Santa Fe at the Rocky Mountain Modern Language Association conference. And so we all did a presentation there. And then following the conference it, you know, we're outside in the lobby and we're like, hey, we should do an edited book. And then that was the, the genesis of that project.
0: Now you're in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, you grew up in grants, New Mexico. What have you noticed looking at New Mexico as we are having this debate over monuments. Uh, of course, we had a violent incident uh, around a, a monument, Conquistador, in Albuquerque, and just recently, at the time of this interview, we had uh, a monument taking down on Indigenous Day in Santa Fe Plaza. What has been your reaction to watching this?
2: So it's been interesting because I'm I'm here in Mesa, Arizona, and I have a lot of friends who are directly involved in some of that activist work in New Mexico, and so. When the protest was happening, it was being planned, I guess, in Alcalde, and then also in Albuquerque, I was getting text messages and emails and Facebook messages from folks just sort of keeping me in the loop because I knew that this was part of the scholarship work that I had been doing. And so I'm really grateful because I know that sometimes it's hard to be out, well, not sometimes, all the time, it's hard to be away from New Mexico, especially when so much of the work that you're doing is in action. And so, you know, part of it was thinking about why well, can't physically be there. Of course, because of COVID, because of travel restrictions, because that's not where I live right now. And so, Esteban Rial Galvez and I decided that we would, um, you know, think about what we can do from a scholarship uh, standpoint. And we put together an extended decolonial Onyate bibliography that has, you know, different resources, archival, historical, literary. Um, you know, newspaper articles that had come out over the last, uh, you know, let's say 10 years about um, Oñate so that anybody who wanted to learn more about that history could. And the idea was it for it was that people would start to really debunk or demystify this, this notion that Oñate is a founding father and a hero, because certainly in my scholarship and in Esteban's, that's not
0: true. In other states, Latinos in other states, Latinos, Chicanos, Hispanics, we always look at this idea that people in New Mexico uh, venerate Oñate and other conquistador figures is somewhat odd. But why, from a New Mexico perspective, do these conquistadors, are they celebrated in New Mexico in this space? It seems, yes, there are instances in other places, I'm thinking of the coastal area of California where these colonial figures are honored, but why he is Oñate, such a celebrated figure in New Mexico when he's not in the rest of uh, the American Southwest.
2: So, I mean, he has a he has a lot to do with the founding of what people would say is Spanish New Mexico, and so folks that can trace their ancestry, and a lot of this was in large part to Friar Henrico Chavez's work on the founding families of New Mexico. Um, but even Fryan Henrico Chavez states that of all of the colonists that came with Oñate, very few states. So the notion that one could trace themselves back to Oñate, it's pretty slim, but then they also count Don Diego de Vargas as a second sort of founding father of New Mexico, and people can trace their ancestry back to that. So a lot of it has to do with the way that we can trace our ancestry back to, you know, what, like, like I said, people would say our founding fathers of New Mexico. Um, But that line, it's not a straight line, right? So we have to think about the more complicated history, um, colonial violence, settler colonial violence, uh, genocide against indigenous people. And for some reason, there are a lot of folks who, if they are able to trace their ancestry to Spain or to those original settlers, they will sort of sidestep or um, excuse the violent past and say, well, we have to think about what he did. And we have to think about, you know, where would we be if he hadn't come, right? And of course, within like a colonial model, this whole conversation about the what ifs is really, it's unproductive because it doesn't give us where where we are now. It doesn't tell us where we are now. So of course, what ifs are good for the future, right? What if we can imagine a different kind of future? We can't imagine a different kind of past. That past is what it was, but we have to be honest about what that past was.
0: And how does the uh, struggle for statehood play in this? We know that some scholarship has touched upon uh, the idea of pura sangria, the eugenics movement at the time, and it's the racism at from the turn of the century. Does that play a role in the current uh, Spanish conquistador identity that is prevalent in New Mexico today?
2: Of course, and this doesn't apply to all Hispanics, you know, across New Mexico. So I'm talking about you know certain segments of it, but. We know that new mexico became a state in 1912 but that new mexico experienced the longest period of territorial was a territory longer than any other you know state in the u.s and part of that has to do with like very racialized like politics that deal with again directly that idea of of subjecting the other to these notions of being anti-protestant anti-english speaking i mean they were there were indigenous mestizo dark skinned individuals in New Mexico that wasn't really like the idea for the formation of the United States at the time. So a lot of the protests came because we were, we spoke Spanish, we were Catholics, and we were brown, and we were poor. And that wasn't something that the US determined to be the ideal for the formation of the nation. So, and you saw that from newspapers as far as the Midwest. You saw it in the East Coast. So, there were a lot of um, individuals who were not supportive of New Mexico's buy for statehood. And so, some of the strategies that New Mexicans employed at that time was to show that they were also European, right? So, if they descended from Spanish conquistadores, then they also were European. So, they had it. They advocated for this sort of shared heritage with um, Euro-American settlers. And so it's interesting just to kind of see how much of that, and if we think about again, like this idea of legacy, how much of that continues to today. So people will, um, you know, they will say that they are Spanish American. Um, The census doesn't do us any justice because people get very confused about even if you identify as Hispanic, your racial category is white and that's confusing for some people to identify as both Spanish and white. So I think in a lot of ways, the census perpetuates those identities um, but yeah, that was very much sort of a social strategy. It didn't mean that they were actually white. It meant that it was a social strategy.
0: You mentioned the social strategy. Italian-Americans used Christopher Columbus to battle discrimination, kind of put themselves in the American narrative. Was that also going on with New Mexico Hispanics to say, look, we are, we are connected to the narrative of this land, and therefore um, we, don't, we don't deserve discrimination, segregation, subjugation that it was a strategy to to try to insert themselves in the narrative. Is that, is that what also is going on?
2: Yeah, so I've not heard that particular narrative. And I think part of that is can only be premised on, you know, if, if the United States as a nation recognizes prior colonial periods, then that could be a narrative, but they don't. So the whole idea for colonization is to wipe out any existing communities um, that that were here before the United States colonial period started right, so you know we know that with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo there were certain agreements that were made between the United States and the then 100,000 individuals who elected to become US citizens at the end of the Mexican American war. But you know, we also know that the Chicano movement made you know the larger public aware that those those treaty rights were not honored and we know that the U.S. has a long history of not honoring treaties, and so I think it's all—it's um, a strategy, certainly that uh, you know early Spanish Americans used in literature in the you know first part of the 20th century. But I don't think it was something that the U.S. as a nation uh, signed off on.
0: Now, as we're having these racial conciliation conversations, and, and Albuquerque has been included, um, some Hispanics have who who have supported the monuments say they're offended that they're being an attacked and they see this as an attack on their heritage because they can trace their lineage back uh, decades if not centuries what's your reaction to them to say that hey look um, I, this is my family you're attacking this is my heritage this is something that i've been taught throughout my life and now you're attacking it what is the response to that
2: yeah, i wonder you know i wonder to the extent like what have we been taught you know growing up about our heritage and also about our shared heritages right so you know in new mexico we have multiple heritages that exist and co and sometimes coexist and sometimes don't coexist and you know one of that one of those conversations that comes to mind is in 2008 when the last conquistador was filmed it's a documentary by John valadez and Cristina Ibarra but they were talking about the largest equestrian statue in the world, which is in El Paso. And that is, um, it's named the equestrian, but people know it as Oñate, because that that was, um, it was a compromise by the El Paso City Council to name it something else, right? And that was sort of an effort to sidestep the fact that they did want to put up an Oñate statue. Um, but the idea for that, you know, one of the individuals in there, Conchita Lucero, had commented that this will finally be an unveiling of our history. And that documentary starts with her narrating that when she grew up, she didn't have an opportunity to learn about her Spanish-American history. So it's interesting to see how her sort of argument parallels the same sort of arguments that indigenous communities or even Chicanx communities might make in terms of not being, not being able to have access to their history, right? So, So the narrative is the same, and, but the results are sort of different, right? Because one exerts more power over another. It's difficult because these are all, you know, basically ethnic communities but what happens in New Mexico when these ethnic communities are pitting themselves against each other? Um, you know, in New Mexico, certainly it looks like people who identify as Spanish-American tend to exert some amount of superiority over people who um, are more mixed blood or who are indigenous. And that, again, is a social construct, a social hierarchy construct, um, not based, certainly not based on race because we know that the settlers that came with Oñate were mestizos and mixed-race individuals, so they weren't all pure-blooded Spaniards either. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the pureza de sangre notion. So they weren't that when they arrived, and so it's just interesting for them to sort of link onto this notion of being Spanish-American. Now, I will say that, you know, the Spanish colonial period was long-lasting. It was more than 300 years. And so there is scholarship that shows that people tend to affix themselves to a country that has been, that has controlled this area the longest, right? So people feel an affinity toward the Spanish colonial period because in comparison to the U.S. colonial period, you know, the Spanish colonial period has been twice as long. And so people have, people tend to adhere to a culture that was in formation for 300 years, right? So it's sort of like we're still like we're still adjusting. A lot of the the authors from New Mexico in the early 1900s, like I mentioned, were really having a hard time grappling with the idea that their culture could be erased, right? And that was that was a real possibility for you know especially when you know modernity arrived to New Mexico and Americanization efforts were in full force, and so there was a lot of you know. A, Obviously, since at least you know the mid-1800s people have been contesting this notion of culturally erasure.
0: Now a number of cities across the country are, have convened racial healing councils task force to talk about uh, systematic racism or systemic racism and uh, mo- various monuments, whether they're confederate or Spanish conquistador monuments. Albuquerque is one of them. What has been your reaction to the attempt to convene a committee of community members to have this conversation? Is this helpful? Will this decide what we can do with these monuments? Or is this a band-aid to circumvent very difficult discussions we need to be having?
2: I think it's a laudable goal to, you know, ask people to participate in conversations where we really take a deep look at our heritage, you know, the biases that we carry with us, um, the different kinds of privileges that we exert at one time or another. Um, The I know that folks in the city of Albuquerque did do the race healing and memory project. I don't know if that's the correct name, but. So they did do a project and it was convened over the summertime and there were different focus groups. And um, I participated in one of them. I didn't participate in the the follow-up sessions. And I think that for a lot of folks um, who have been doing this activist work um, and scholarship for a long time, it feels like a frustrating pause in the process um, to sit and have to do that work when they feel like they've done that work and they're ready for action. And I think that you know, the resulting, you know, toppling of the obelisk, for example, is, is a, it's a prime example of the way that people, um, they've waited, and, you know, the mayor of Santa Fe did, you know, say that something was to be done about the obelisk. When they saw that inaction, then they reacted to that. And I think that that's, um, you know, the big thing in New Mexico is that folks are done waiting for justice, and it's a hard thing to wait for, and it's a hard line of promises to not deliver upon.
0: And finally, I've asked you this before, but if these statues were removed, what should replace those spaces?
2: Yeah, so I think this is a question going around, you know, what are we going to do with these things? I don't know that we even have to replace it with anything. I don't know that we take something down, um, you know, whether we decide to put them in museums, whether we decide to like melt it down and hand out, you know, pieces to individuals, uh, I don't know that there actually has to be a conversation about what should go here instead. You know, I don't, I don't see it unreasonable to take them down and that can be the end of the conversation. Now, I know people have talked about, um, you know, we should have uh, statues that, that pay honor to other individuals within New Mexico. Um, of course, Pope has been, you know, talked about quite often and we do have some statues of Pope in New Mexico and at the, at the nation's capital. But I also wanna recognize that indigenous women have been at the forefront of most of these activist efforts in the community and no one, from what I've heard so far is talking about honoring indigenous women at this moment with through statues. So that's a possibility, but then also, you know, within my larger work, I'm always advocating for like, can we stop talking about this sort of hero founding father notion? Do people have to be statues because, do people get to be statues because they're heroes or can we talk about just community members who have done you know, it takes a lot to survive and thrive and especially through colonial processes and traumas. And, you know, if we can honor people in that way, I think that that's pretty exceptional as well.
0: The name of uh, Vanessa's book is uh, Kerencia, Reflections on New Mexico Homeland. Thank you, Vanessa, for joining us. And we appreciate you coming. We look forward to you coming back soon.
3: Thanks, Russ. And we were lucky enough to get a few extra minutes with uh, ASU assistant professor Vanessa Fonseca Chavez. Uh, We uh, should mention that she grew up in Grants, New Mexico. She still has lots of ties here to New Mexico. And so we wanted to talk to her a little bit more, Russell Contreras, our correspondent, about her upbringing in Grants and how it's informed her academic work and uh, her unique perspective on The Unique History of New Mexico. So here is that extra with Vanessa Fonseca Chavez.
0: Thank you, Dr. Fonseca Chavez, for joining us again. You grew up in Grants, New Mexico in a Hispanic family. Um, What kind of conversations did you have growing up about New Mexico's past before you became a scholar in terms of this Hispanic colonial traditions? Was this a conversation that you had on your family? Or
2: were you even aware of it? Actually, I probably wasn't even really aware of it growing up in Grants. I knew that, you know, I knew the Oneyate had been in that area. I knew that, you know, I lived in a former uranium mining boomtown. I knew that where I lived just outside of uh, Grants in a double-wide trailer off I-40, was previously the carrot capital of the world. Uh, they grew a lot of carrots in that region. Um, the soil was you know, perfect for that. So I knew all these sort of little things about the region. Um, in my immediate family, we didn't talk a lot about those things. Um, my grandmother lived in Gallup, New Mexico. And so we often took trips to Gallup. And so I think for a lot of people in New Mexico, uh, growing up in a Hispanic family, you tend to live these experiences rather than sit down and have deep conversations about them. So when we lived in, uh, we had moved to Puaque uh, when I was in elementary school and uh, it wasn't dual language programs that were in place. It was just, there was a cultural component to our learning. So once a week we would go to Senora Valdez's class and we would, um, you know, we would sing Spanish songs. We would write in, I have a, a little notebook from third grade that says like, Así es Nuevo Mexico. And it's uh, sort of this like weird compilation of my like, uh, substandard like bilingual skills at the time. And I'm like, Una vez we went to go fishing and we caught un pes, you know? So there it was, it was an attempt for us to connect with our cultural heritage, but in a way that didn't seem forced. And my teacher in third grade, his name was Mr. Valdez, he was from Tierra Maria. And I remember him being in class with his guitar, singing La Bamba. And so we were always really immersed in the culture but we, I don't remember having like critical conversations about it and it wasn't until I got to UNM where, like I said, I started having very visceral responses to what was going on around me. And I think that sort of determined what my scholarly trajectory was gonna be.
0: Now, we were having a visceral debate in the, sh- on, in the streets in Albuquerque and in Santa Fe around these monuments, but what is it like in the academy with your work uh, from Omnathia project to uh, your current book is there, are there scholars that are, is the academy on having these same visceral debates uh, amongst themselves or is this seems to be the direction that the scholarship is going around this debate in New Mexico and the American Southwest?
2: I mean, there's a lot of scholars um, that have been doing this great work. Michael Trujillo, Yolanda Leyva, um, individuals throughout the southwest who are responding to these sort of colonial era statues and monuments. Um, One of the conversations I was having yesterday, which I thought was pretty uh, interesting, was that this is the work that we have signed up to do, right? This is our job, this is what we've dedicated ourselves to do, to do the scholarship and the research that helps people understand the context of what's going on. Now, we're not community activists, Um, community activists have, you know, a separate Role, but there are also opportunities for you know people who do scholarship and community activists to work together in different ways so that we can come to a better understanding of what's happening. Um, you know, it's difficult, like I said, to not be physically in New Mexico and viewing these things as someone who is interested in oral histories, ethnography, sort of looking, you know, that sort of field work that is important to understanding the context, right? And instead, you get to read. Uh, what's been written in the newspapers, what friends have shared with you, you know videos that they share with you and ask you not to share with anybody else. So you do have some kind of context from being outside of New Mexico, but it's not the same as being a community activist. but I have to tell myself at the end of the day you're not a community activist. You're a professor that works at an institution and you have your sort a different kind of activist agenda.
0: Thank you, Dr. Fonseca Chavez for joining us. We appreciate it.
2: All right, thanks Russ.
3: Good time to pause and remind you that this Sunday at 6 p.m. on NMPBS, you will see our debate for the race for the U.S. Senate seat in New Mexico. This, of course, is the seat being vacated by Tom Udall after a long and storied uh, career in both the Senate and the House of Representatives, as well as his time as Attorney General and many other things here in New Mexico. He decided last year that he was not going to run which opened up that seat. We have Ben Ray Lujan, who's the current uh, representative from the 3rd Congressional District, running as the Democrat. Mark Ronchetti, you probably know him uh, as the meteorologist from longtime meteorologist from most recently KRQE-TV. He's running as the Republican. And there's a third-party candidate in here as well, Libertarian Bob Walsh. That will, again, air 6 p.m. Sunday on New Mexico PBS. We encourage you to watch. You can also find it on our website, and join us Monday evening as well at 5 p.m. We took a different approach to this debate where we partnered with a couple of community organizations, the New Mexico Black Voters Collaborative and New Mexico Native Vote, and we reached out to them and just asked their members, what are the issues that you want the candidates talking about as they compete for your votes? We called through all that information and created a, a citizen's agenda with the themes and issues that they identified which will help drive the coverage of that debate. And we're going to check in with them on Monday at 5 p.m. on Facebook Live and find out what they thought about the debate, how it went, what the candidates had to say, and whether or not uh, our questions got to the heart of those issues that they thought were important. So a couple things to be looking out for I encourage you to watch. We have also done candidate conversations, one-hour shows, so about half-hour interviews with all of the candidates in the first, second, and third congressional districts we shared some of our conversation with the second congressional district candidates last week this week we want to share some of the first congressional district candidates that is deb holland as the democrat and the incumbent she is challenged this year by michelle garcia holmes and the part you're going to hear from them really has to do with crime big issue especially in cd1 and uh, also we'll delve into a little bit around police reform. So here are some of those expert excerpts. And again, you can go to nmpbs.org, click on our election page, and watch those conversations in full if you haven't seen them already.
2: I will always support training for law enforcement. I think that is a given. We have to do that. Mm -hmm. And we have to have better recruitment efforts. We see that law enforcement agencies across the country are having difficulty with recruitment efforts. And uh, when you have trouble with recruitment efforts, uh, you lower the standards. And I think that's one of the problems we've seen across the nation.
3: All right, time to head back to the line now on an election topic, and that is Constitutional Amendment number 1. This would change the way the Public Regulation uh, Commission, the PRC here in New Mexico, is run and operated. Right now there are commissioners who sit on that uh, panel, and they are elected by you, the voters. Constitutional Amendment would change that to folks nominated by the governor at the time, although she, w- she or he would choose from... Uh, nominees selected by bipartisan group of folks and serve for six years. Uh, so it uh, it's an issue about how this important body is run and operated. Uh, it's been a bugaboo for a lot of years here in New Mexico. These folks that are responsible for uh, helping to decide utility rates uh, and all sorts of important things that affect our day-to-day life. In recent years, there have been moves to Um, have minimum thresholds for experience for these people to try to professionalize it a little bit. They've been very political uh, positions in the past, uh, and this is the latest attempt to change the way the PRC is run and operated, but it does change how you, the voters, are represented in state government. So the line panelists are going to talk about that as well as the latest um, campaign contribution reports that have come out as we head barreling into the election, which is now just a little under three weeks away. All right, here again is Gene Grant and the line. This election, New
1: Mexico voters are once again being asked to change the state constitution in an effort to reform the Public Regulation Commission. The PRC, as we know it, has been beset by scandal and inefficiency since it was created in the late 1990s. In previous attempts to reform and professionalize the five member elected panel, have had, Steve, mixed results. <laughs> it would become an appointed body of three, as we know. Do you think that's a better move and that the elected PRC has
5: run its course? Well, not to violate my secret ballot, but I voted for the amendment. Um, I, I, I've covered the PRC uh, for several years, mm-hmm. and yeah, sometimes it just seemed hopeless. It's like, political pie fights. And, uh, and not only that, not and behind the scenes, they for years had this problem with all these vacancies, uh, division heads and, right. uh, other important administrative uh, jobs have just been unfilled. And so it's just, it's, it's been a mess. I, I think this would be better. They've been, there've been uh, efforts to do this for, um, Oh, since I started covering the legislature actually back in 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it would be more efficient and less, it's such a technical thing and people say, well, we need the power to, to vote for our commissioners and the, um, you know, that's a down ballot position. No one really, a lot of people out in the public really don't know what the PRC does. Mm
2: -hmm.
5: And so if they just vote for their favorite politician, uh, nothing's going to change. Did you pick
1: up on that? It's, you know, the idea here is to take politics out of the game. One of the ideas is not to have, out of the three members, two cannot be of the party of that sitting governor, if I have that right. Uh, does that strip out all politics, or is this just another way to get around certain things?
6: No, I think it would increase the political, uh, political factor. And I am, I will, in the interest of full disclosure, say that uh, I voted uh, I voted against this mm-hmm. uh, because I think with all the problems of the PRC that were described by Steve, these are staffing problems, these are technical problems. and and having the commission appointed rather than elected uh, would not solve those problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are staffing problems. And what we are left with then would be a body that is totally unaccountable, to anyone but the New Mexico Senate and the governor. And uh, my experience has been that um, sometimes having an independent PRC that can act at best uh, in the interests of the ratepayers um, that might be better than having the legislature and the governor control it. I'm also resentful of the fact that the question on the ballot does not actually say to the voters, you are removing elected body and replacing it with an appointed body. Right. Uh, that is the case. Um, and I think that people need to know that their power is being diminished in that way. Mm-hmm. And the accountability of, of these uh, folks that are performing a very important uh, making very important decisions, uh, will, be, um, will be subject to the legislature, which now um, is, uh, they, their campaign contributions are not uh, restricted a half as much as those for the PRC. Mm. Uh, PRC commissioners cannot take contributions from regulated industries. Mm-hmm. Legislators, governors certainly can.
1: THAT'S AN INTERESTING POINT THERE, SOMETHING TO KEEP IN MIND. AND TOM, Didi MENTIONED SOMETHING THAT IS JUST, YOU KNOW, REPRESENTATION IS A VERY PRECIOUS THING FOR A LOT OF FOLKS. YOU'RE TALKING ABOUT A BEDROCK, FUNDAMENTAL PART OF BEING IN A, in a, in a DEMOCRACY, BASICALLY. <laughs> AND represent, YOU KNOW, AGAIN, HOW DOES THIS GET PITCHED TO THE PUBLIC THAT IT'S A BETTER SYSTEM THAN WHAT
4: WE HAD BEFORE? Yeah. And since everybody's doing disclosures, I have not voted, but uh, in disclosure, (laughs) I do have clients who will sometimes find themselves in front of the PRC. Mm -hmm. My uh, comments are my own. Uh, And so with that, I think the issue of representation is very key uh, because, you know, we have, for example, the Albuquerque Bernalillo County Water Utility Authority. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these water utility authorities, um, you know, do not have any elected bodies on there. Uh, you know they have a lot of elected folks who are representing supposedly you know the you know the the general public, but I fear that the types of proposed changes that we're seeing for the PRC with that uh, um, constitutional amendment um, will take away that representation uh, because and it will create just a, an even more politicized body. Granted, you know the the dysfunction that we've seen at the PRC is is. PRETTY EPIC, Mm -hmm. BUT uh, you know I I DON'T THINK THAT IT'S REASON TO BLOW IT UP. I THINK THERE'S A REASON TO REALLY FOCUS AND HELP THEM TO BE uh, MORE DELIBERATE AND PROFESSIONAL uh, IN THEIR DEALINGS. Mm -hmm. Uh, THERE'S ANOTHER GOOD GOVERNMENT TOPIC I WANT TO GET TO, THE LATEST LOBBYING
1: REPORT BY NEW MEXICO ETHICS WATCH, WHICH DETAILED 2.3 MILLION FROM LOBBYISTS GIVEN TO LEGISLATIVE CAMPAIGNS. A FULL THIRD OF THAT WAS GIVEN BY CHEVRON. AND STEVE, MORE THAN 94% 94 OF CONTRIBUTIONS FROM OIL AND GAS LOBBYISTS COME FROM OUT OF STATE. Right now, what was your read on as you saw this initial report? What was your sense of it?
5: Oh, yeah, the, the, I didn't realize that much money was coming in from out of state, but it is, and um, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's um, it's an incredible thing, and, and this is a time where a lot of people are suffering financially because of the pandemic and the shutdowns and everything, um, mm-hmm. and uh, just to see uh, these. And big oil companies, and in this case, it was Chevron, was like the star of the show. Uh, you know, just basically look, look at the appearances; they're trying to buy the the state government, mm-hmm. and uh, but they can, you know, I've hardly ever written campaign finance yeah uh, you know, campaign contributions for, you know, three hundred thousand dollars or whatever. It's it it just seems obscene the the amount of. Uh, Money that pours in IT'S not illegal, and they're sure. doing everything yeah. right. And I got to say, Chevron's really good about uh, filling out complete, uh, uh, you know, campaign disclosure forms and everything, and lobbyist disclosure forms. Mm-hmm. Um, they 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 abide by the law. Mm-hmm. But um, D, it, it let just, me let me get Dee in here. Sorry,
1: sorry to cut you off, Steve. Just got about a minute left. Dee you've been active in this uh, realm of the world. What was your sense of it as you read that report?
6: Well, this is a time of uh, peril for the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. and their revenues have been uh, diminished um, and yet here they are spending huge megabucks on uh, lobbying and uh, the legislature in particular i think it's not just chevron it's also conoco right uh Conoco-Phillips, uh occidental and you have to take all of those contributions together. Mm-hmm. Thank God we have some measure of transparency. Um, and, uh, and as uh, Steve said, I think, um, you know, Chevron is disclosing. There are a lot of candidates and a lot of others that uh, do not disclose either by accident mm-hmm. or, um, and uh, you know, a careful perusal of the the reports, Will. Uh, Steve was telling me about one thing gotta, before.
1: Got to cut you there. Sorry about that. Just a little bit on uh, short on time. Thanks to everyone on our panel. Also, go vote. We'll see you back at this table soon.
3: We will end the show this week, as we always do, with some thoughts from our host, Gene Grant. We appreciate you always for listening, joining in and encourage you to join us throughout the week on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Let us know what you're thinking about, what you're seeing, observing, worried about. And please get back to us on our Senate debate on Sunday night. hope you'll tune in and watch. We'd love to hear what you think about how it went, what the candidates had to say, and what more we should be doing and covering and clarifying before Election Day hits. Until next week, we hope you have a terrific weekend. And of course, We hope you stay safe, you stay stay healthy, and we will talk to you again soon.
1: There's so much to consider in this aftermath period of the obelisk on Santa Fe Plaza being pulled down. One has to acknowledge the shock to the system for many with long roots in the city. It's one thing seeing a statue pulled down in a far flung locale, it's another matter and arguably one of the most iconic locations in our state. The decision by Santa Fe Mayor Alan Weber to not secure the obelisk in the plaza over the weekend is a debate to be settled later. But the bigger question over how we reconcile our complicated and brutal path that brought us to this point is still there. Whatever the means to a new place of understanding, be it a commission or anything else, that conversation needs to start. It needs to start right now.